Well, we're going to continue through in our series, Christ, the center of all things, and really going to follow on from a number of the things that God has already said to us this morning. And uh, so if you want to turn to Colossians, and we're going to be in chapter 2, we're going to be reading from verse 16, but I don't know whether you're a cat or a dog person. Um, who's a cat person? A dog person? Oh, it's even, and and uh, not, not, not a person, but you're neither of those. <laughs> who's neither? Who's a goldfish person? Is any, anyone? Well, I've always said cats, and I don't know, there's something about cats that, do you know, have you ever been working? You've got some work to do, so you kind of, you get your laptop out, or it might be you're going to read a book. You just, you've set aside some time. The cat has wanted nothing to do with you all day, for anything like my cat. And then, but now you need to get something done. So you open up your laptop, and uh, where, what does the cat do? <laughs> it, it comes, and it sits on the keyboard, and there's no way that you can do anything. Your focus needed to be on the computer screen or on the book or whatever it is that you were doing. And the cat kind of comes in and interjects and interposes itself between you and that thing which you really want to focus. And uh, it occurred to me, I wonder if this is the problem behind homeworking. I wonder if cats are secretly conspiring to bring the country to its knees as everyone's kind of at home and they're hopping on, uh, on keyboards here, there and everywhere. But the real question is, is why do cats do this? What, what are they doing? I had some, oh, there we go, we've got some lovely cat pictures. You don't have to go on the internet uh, this week to look at your fix of cat pictures. So there they are. I'm sure that's recognizable to some. Dogs tend to kind of, they, I don't know, I don't, they tend to be a bit more down here, don't they? And they look up at you. Let me know if I can help. Anything I can do. I'm just down here. I'm ready, ready. What do you want me to do? They're kind of down there. Cats just come up and they just sit right on the keyboard. And uh, the question is why? Why is that? And there are various theories, of course. One is that keyboard might be a little bit warm. But uh, I did a bit of research and came across Marilyn Crager, who's a certified cat behavioral consultant and author of Naughty No More. And she suggests a couple in her wisdom of other reasons why this might be. The first one, really, and this is the one I really want to pick up on, is that the cat wants to be the center of attention. It can see where your attention is. And it just comes in, and it just gets in there. I should be, it says, the center of your attention. There it is, look. <laughs> it's me you should be looking at, not your keyboard. They want to bask in our affection. And uh, kind of, as they see you stroking the keyboard, that's strokes that they should be having, so they interject themselves. The second reason, according to the experts, is that uh, if the, the, the focus of your attention seems to be important to you, then really with some urgency, it needs to belong to the cat. And the means by which this transaction takes place is usually scent and fur. And so they kind of rub themselves all over it, and by that means it becomes theirs. If it looks like them, theirs and smells like theirs, it probably is theirs. But as I say, it's the first thing that I really want to pick up on. This, this something coming in and taking our attention from what we should be looking at. In our passage, we're going to read in just a moment, Paul warns Christians, the followers of Jesus, who are, trying, who are, who are centered their lives around Jesus, that things are going to come in and they're going to sit on their keyboard, as, as it were. Good things 
are going to come in and try and get in the wrong place to obscure what their true focus should be, interject themselves into our relationship and our walk with the Lord such that it is disrupted and diverted and degraded and derailed and other Ds that I'm sure you can think of. I kind of run out at that point. So we're going to read from chapter 2, verse 16, 23, and just pick up on one or two things that can, can get in the way of our focus and um, take uh, that Jesus' is, is place in our lives. So let's read. So therefore, really following up from all that's gone before, we'll pick up on some of those things. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the, all the things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So in this passage, there is a, a warning uh, against worldly counterfeit spirituality that seeks to replace our singular devotion to Jesus Christ. Man-made religion is here contrasted with true a spirituality which is centered around and connected to the person of Jesus Christ. It's focused on him, and yet other things are going to come and try and take that rightful place in our lives, take us off track, make us ineffective. So we're going to think about three things here, and just by way of trying to help us through the passage, I kind of came up with three R's, and we'll just walk kind of very briefly through each one of those. I've called them rules, roasts, and rest. We're going to look at rules, roasts, and rest, all good things that can get in the wrong place and can sit like that cat on a keyboard where they shouldn't be. First is rules. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. Now, rules can be good, of course. They're, they're good things. Um, do not touch wet, wet paint is a good rule. Do not run a red light is a good rule. These are things that it's, it's best. Uh, they're helpful to us. One of God's rules is don't have a sexual relationship outside of marriage. It's a good rule. It's God's rule. It's there for our benefit and God's glory. Because these things always go together. We, sometimes we have, we're tempted in our minds to distinguish them and to say, my good is not tied up with, with God's good. Actually, they come together. We're made in the image of God to flourish. And we heard this morning about his instruction manual, the helpful principles that give direction to our lives. They're given to us for our good and God's glory. But rules, good or bad, should not be our primary focus or attention. They shouldn't sneak up and sit on our keyboard, get in the way of our relationship with Jesus and take primary place. Now, why do I say that? Well, three reasons kind of come to mind. The first is that our relationship with God is not based on rules. It is not based on rules. 
It's based on, in fact, if it perhaps could have been if we'd kept the law, we'd kept God's requirements. He said, this is good, this is bad, live like this, don't live like this. But almost immediately, we fail to do that. And it needs to be perfect obedience because God is perfect. It's no good coming to him and saying, well, it's kind of 60, 40, 30, 70, 30, I don't know, 99%, whatever. He's perfect. He's a God who is holy, 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 perfect holiness. You break one, you've broken them all, effectively, in terms of rules being a means or the law being a means of relationship with God. That way is closed to every single one of us. There is no way you're going to have a relationship with God based on rules. Just get it out of the way, out of our thinking. There needs to be another way. And of course, Jesus came to be that way. He, he lived the law perfectly. He lived in our place the way that we should have lived. He did it for us. He took on flesh. He became a man in order to live the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we deserved. So, so through faith in him, he becomes a door to us, a door into relationship with God. Can you see, it's not based on rules. Our relationship with God is not based on rules. We come to him as our heavenly father, not because of what we've done, not because of the rules that we've kept, but because of the, the wonderful way that Jesus lived and the wonderful way that he died in our place and rose again. And so through faith in him, that's the basis of our relationship. It's not rules. Get them off the keyboard. Don't live our lives based on these things as if, as if that's how we relate to God. Through faith in Jesus, who became a door for us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is rules don't help us obey anyway. They don't come with the power to help us live them out. You can say, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, all you like. There's no power in it. The power kind of gets supplied, I guess, when you say, if you do that, you'll, then this horrible thing will happen. And that kind of has some impact. But even that doesn't prevent us doing things that sometimes we know are wrong. In fact, the rules can sometimes stir up a rebelliousness in us. The whole touch, you know, don't touch the paint thing. We want to touch the paint. As soon as we, we hear, God says, don't do this, don't do this. I mean, you give all kinds of examples. There's something in, in the natural person that rises up to, to rebel against what God has said and feels a certain pride in doing it. Rules don't come with the power to obey. It's no good. We can't relate and live our life based on rules. They're empty. With Jesus and the grace that we have in him comes with the power to live differently. As God gives his son to us, the Lord Jesus, as his grace comes to us, as the basis of our relationship is what he has done, faith in him, there's power that comes to us. And how does that happen? Well, part of it is heart change. As God's grace comes to us, it changes the heart. I don't know about you. I remember when I became a Christian. First day I started to follow Jesus. Well, I, several... I, Several days afterwards, at least, I began to kind of experience this internal change. My desires were changing. It wasn't that I was having to conform to a different way of living because I started following Jesus. It was I was experiencing different desires. I don't want to do that anymore. My focus became, to, it was on Jesus now, not on other things. I wanted to please him. I wanted to follow him. I didn't want to do those things. If he says that's, that's not good, then that's not good as far as I was concerned. Obviously, that's a battle, and there's part of us, the old self, that we fight and we wrestle with these things, and sometimes we're in that kind of zone, and sometimes we're not. But the fact is, the truth is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're being changed from the inside out because of the grace of God that has come to you. And it empowers us to live differently because there's something in us that is now new that wants to live differently, that is now 
has a love for God and a love for his ways. And love is a, it's just the most powerful motivator. Before we were in love with all kinds of other things, once you're in love with Jesus, in love with God, empowers you and his grace comes to us. His power fills us. If it's very presence in the person of the Holy Spirit, we live differently. This is how we get rules off the table. Don't make them your primary focus. They should be down here. Focus on Jesus and what he's done for you, the grace of God that's come to us in him. Rules have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh because they don't change the heart. Where Jesus changes the heart. You set up all the rules you like. If you're not in love with Jesus, if you've not received the grace of God to you in Jesus, you're just going to knock those rules down one by one by one. You're going to break them. The Old Testament, of course, has a number of kind of laws, rules, if you like, ways to live. And, of course, there's something in there which expresses the holiness of God, but there's another way that they're helpful to us that they should show us, I've not lived like that. I've not lived up to the way God wanted me to live. So we need another way. Even our breaking of these kind of rules, you kind of might think just the Ten Commandments, you might be familiar with those. Kind of don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. The whole, but put God first in your life is kind of right there up at number one. Don't, in fact, don't have idols. Don't kind of make anything else in God's place. That's kind of right there at the top. And then there's a whole lot of things that happen when you do put other things in God's place. We've broken those things. And as we read them, we think, oh, this, I, I can't approach God like this. Is there another way? And yes, there's another way. There's another way in Jesus who lived them out perfectly for us so that through faith in him, we don't have to live our lives and relate to God based on rules, but based on receiving God's grace to us in Jesus. We become a son or a daughter. Now you're in the family. That's the basis of the way we live and we follow Jesus. That's the context for us following Jesus. The laws are a shadow the reality, the substance is found in Christ who keeps them perfectly. He powers us to live them from the heart, not under compulsion or fear, but out of love for God. It becomes a joy to us. In, of course, in the battle and the challenge of it all. We don't do it out of our own effort by, by the Spirit's power. So we must be wary, and we're being warned here, about a spirituality where rules multiply. Suddenly, they begin to obscure Jesus, the spirituality that's really focused around doing this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And the Pharisees did it in Jesus' day. They just kind of, they, the rules multiplied because they took their eyes off the grace of God. We need to think and focus and receive from Jesus and his perfect obedience for us. That's the first place we go to. We reign in life by receiving God's grace to us. We can delight in God's law, first and foremost, because Jesus fulfilled it for us. He obeyed it for us. We don't come to the Bible with a heavy heart. Oh, no, oh, no. It takes us to Jesus, who lived it for us. Now, out of love and by the power of the Spirit, we can begin to walk in these things ourselves. So that's the first one, rules. Get them off the keyboard. Focus on Jesus. Make Jesus the center of our lives. The next one is roasts. Roasts. Oh, he's having a roast dinner later on. So I'm not sure that we are. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking roast dinners rather than a, a, a roasting, as in telling off kind of thing. Roast dinners. What should we eat? What shouldn't we eat? Should we eat meat? Should we not eat meat? All these sorts of things. Well, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. So get them off the keyboard. Get them out of the way. 
don't focus your life around those things. Don't make that which is of secondary importance, primary importance. All food is good in its proper place. Yet there is something about food, well, actually more about the human heart, where it, it, it takes on, again, it sneaks up onto the keyboard. It looms larger in our life than it should do. It takes a place in our life that it shouldn't do. It can exert a control over us that it shouldn't do. It can even begin to have or seem to have some kind of spiritual or moral dynamic to it, which it does not have. The mistake we make with food that Jesus pointed out is we think what we take into our body has some kind of moral or spiritual cleansing effect on us. And it does not have that. It doesn't. Just because we can eat something and physically it helps us or it might kind of claim to cleanse this or cleanse that or whatever it might be. We have this language around food. It has no effect spiritually on us, what we take into our body or indeed what we don't take into our body. We don't become righteous or unrighteous by what we eat or don't eat. It has no such effect. Of course, the food laws in the Old Testament really were to make a point. They were a shadow. They were an illustration. They weren't the reality. They were teaching that God is holy and there needs to be a separation between the holy and the unholy and the two don't mix. But it was never about food. It's about God being holy and us not being holy. And how do we approach God? How do we become God's people such that we can know him and draw close to him? How does that happen? It does not happen through food. It happens only through Jesus Christ who cleanses us. The Bible says his blood cleanses us from sin. It's talking about faith in his death on the cross. As we take for ourselves and receive for ourselves through faith what he has done for us, his death, that is what cleanses us. That's how we can know the forgiveness that we've heard about this morning. It's through faith in Jesus. It's not about what you eat or what you don't eat. Get food off the keyboard. Do not let it have a hold on your life such that it would like. And how do we do that? We get a proper focus on the Lord Jesus, who is the reality of these things, who can do those things, which things like food begin to pretend that they can do. It's a deception they can't. Jesus is the true bread of life that came down from heaven. He is, the, he, is the, he is the one that truly cleanses us. He is the one that nourishes us. Food is good for the body. It does help us kind of physically. But for the soul, for the spirit, we're not just flesh and blood. Jesus is nourishment, strengthening for our soul, cleansing for our soul. We need to feed on him just as we feed on food. Food would want to take its place and say, just eat this, eat this, don't eat that, and you'll be sorted. No, you won't. Focus on Jesus and feed on him. Now, how do you do that? How do you feed on Jesus? It's just, it's pretty straightforward, really. I was just encouraged, who is it? Dave brought the word about, he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He prepares a table that speaks about fellowship, about friendship, about relationship with God in the context of, of a, a feast. We feed on Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. How do you do that? It's, it's pretty simple. Again, we've heard it this morning. Just We open God's word. It's a very straightforward way of doing it. So if I was trying to explain how you eat, it would be, I don't know, it would be hard to explain how to eat, wouldn't it? Because it, it's very straightforward. It's naturally, we know how to eat. But as, as people, if you're a follower of Jesus, then naturally you know how to feed on Jesus. 
And it's to do with God's word. Open God's word and read it. It's about Jesus. And sometimes you kind of, just when you have a meal, sometimes it's like, wow, that was an amazing meal. And you have a big feast and you kind of feel full afterwards and that was great. And sometimes you're just eating because you need to eat because it, it replenishes you. And, you know, it's, it, it's just the same with God. It's the same with feeding on Jesus. There's, it's a daily aspect to it. There's an ongoing aspect to it. Sometimes there are feasts and sometimes it's kind of a, a smaller meal that we might have. But it, it often starts to open God's word and just read a little bit. Don't think about how you feel or how you don't feel or kind of analyze it too much. Just think, this is God's word, and I'm feeding myself with it. This is the revelation of Jesus. God's, this is a revelation of Jesus, God's Son, His word. It all points to him. And so as we just read a little bit, you might want to start in the New Testament. You might want to join Goff as we go through on the King's Dailies, just kind of I think going through Hebrews at the moment. Just read a little bit, read a little bit, read a little bit. It's a daily, so several times a day, just opening God's word and reading it and letting God speak to you, reveal Jesus to you, and take it on board by faith. Don't take it as a ritual. I've done my little bit now. I've read a few verses. Actually, think about it, trust it, believe in it, thank God for him, praise him for it. It's how we feed on Jesus. We feed on Jesus by thanking him, by opening our mouth and saying, thank you, Lord, for your grace, your kindness to me. Thank you for revealing yourself to me in this, these few verses I've read this morning. Thank you, God, who is slow to anger, abounding in love and, and, and grace to me. Thank you, Lord. We thank him for these things. We pray to him. We say, God, would you, would you provide everything I need today in Jesus? Will you give me that which I need? That's feeding on him. We're relying in Jesus. We're asking him in Jesus' name that he would give us the things that we need. We're trusting in faith. This is, this is the eating, the chewing, the swallowing, the taking on board. It's faith in God's word and what he has said, the promises that he's made to us in his son. Oh, yes, in Jesus. All of God's promises, the yes to us in Jesus. So that's how we feed on Jesus. It's, it's simple, it's straightforward. But there's a battle because we have an enemy that wants to jump up as we, as we get our plate out, as it were, as we open the plate that this is and we want to feed on Jesus. Something else will jump on it. Something else will try and persuade you that actually something else will do you good. Something else can take the place of God in your life and, the fo and you'll focus on Jesus. You watch. I've done the experiment a number of times. Well, I think I'll read my Bible now. <laughs> You watch what happens if the phone rings. Actually, that's in the olden days, wasn't it? Um, your phone buzzes in your pocket or whatever it might be or someone comes to the door or you just think, oh, I'll just have a snack first or I'll just get a drink or I'll just do this or I'll just do this. No, just open it up and read it. Delight yourself in the goodness of God. Feed on Jesus and God's grace to us in him. Let's pick on this final one now as we come to land. The last one, we looked at uh, getting rules off the keyboard. We've looked at getting... Uh, roasts off the keyboard, the food thing. Get them in a proper place. They do have a proper place, but it's not primary. Jesus is primary. Now let's look a little bit at rest together. Let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath rest. The Hebrew word sabbat, meaning to cease from work, to rest. Get that off the keyboard as the primary focus for us. Now, I do like a good comfy chair. I don't know about you. I do like a good comfy chair. And, uh, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, the best of all comfy chairs. I had a friend who had one once, and uh, the, the Barker Lounger. Is that what they're called? And they've, they've got a lever at the, at the side. Has anyone got one of those? You, pull, you, you sit in the chair, and it's comfy. It's, it's okay. It's, it's nice and comfy. You can relax all your muscles. And then you find the lever, and you pull the lever, and it's bang. You sink down into this wonderful rest 
as your body is thrown kind of vertical, horizontal. Right, you get it the wrong way, you're probably thrown the other way. But the best way is, to, is, the, is the horizontal way. And it, something comes up. We've got a little, yeah, there we go. Can we just flick that a few times? It just makes me feel good to see it. Here we go. Wait for it. Oh, isn't, oh, isn't that good? Bang! It just it forces your legs into a position of rest and it pulls you back and you just lie there. And uh, it's, the extent to which I like it is such that I quite like going to the dentist because they've got an electric version of it, haven't they? I don't know if they've done it on purpose, but it's just... They just press a button. Zzz, and you, oh, that's really good. Ow! Kind of, it wakes you up quite quickly when you realise that it's uh, you know, what, they're, what they're trying to do. It's very clever. They're kind of uh, lulling you into a full sense of security. But anyway, rest, it's really good. Now, one of, the, one of the commandments that God gives his people is rest. At the end of the working week, take a day to rest. Cease from your labour, your physical labour. And Jesus kind of tells us that that was for our benefit says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're not supposed to serve the Sabbath. It's made for us. It's like a gift. This is for your benefit. Share it around. We're not meant to kind of work nonstop all the time. It's a healthy pattern to get into of work and rest. It gives us physical and mental benefit. But the Sabbath was always much more than that. It wasn't just about physical rest. In fact, the fact that we need rest points us to something else. The provision of the Sabbath for God's people and just our need of that kind of pattern of rest in our own life, it points us away from that to something else. It points us to a spiritual rest that we need. It points us to Jesus, our Sabbath rest. God promised a rest for his people and he wasn't just talking about a spiritual rest. The physical points to the spiritual. He was pointing to a time when there would be a resting from our works to try and be good enough for God. A, a resting from our kind of a, a continual failure to live up to God's holy and perfect standard. A, a rest from that kind of turmoil inside that we know we're not getting anywhere. We know we're not getting up that hill. We know we've fallen over again. It's just, it's draining. So rest from that and a trusting in Jesus' work for us. Becoming a Christian, I call it a Barker lounger moment. You suddenly, you pull back the lever as you trust in Jesus, and it's, bang, I'm resting in what Jesus has done for me. I know I'm totally accepted, totally forgiven. I, I know what happens when I die. I don't know about you. I just know for a fact what's going to happen. There's no question in my mind. It's not based on what I have done. It's not based on the rules that I have followed. It's not based on what I've eaten. It's not based on anything like that. It's based on trust in Jesus and his completed work for me, which is perfect. You can't argue with that. You can't quibble with that. It's a rest that we have. And it's actually a rest that we have that empowers us to great exertion. If you can put those two things together. There's a rest that we have in God that actually propels us into working hard for the Lord and seeing his kingdom exerted and the church built. This is what the Sabbath points to. But we can, it can get up on the keyboard in a couple of ways, at least. One is that, I mean, it may be harder to relate to, but people made rest hard work. And the Pharisees did this. They made a whole list of rules about what to do, what you can do, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. It just became hard work. <laughs> You're trying to work hard just to, just to rest. It's just a crazy. It's what we do. It's what people do. Try and turn things into rules. It was always about just giving, God giving us a break, literally. 
But the second way, which might be a little bit more uh, relatable, is that sometimes we can make rest God. It can take God's place. That it, that if we can make a physical rest the most important thing, the thing that we live for, physical comfort. It can take the place of Jesus. It can take our focus off Jesus. It can interject itself between our relationship with Jesus. And it can just jump there. And now our lives begin to revolve around comfort and rest and recreation. You see, it's, it's good in its proper place, but not here. Not as a motivator for our whole lives. When that happens, it produces a physical and spiritual lethargy. As we become enslaved to our sofas... The true rest we need is in Christ who frees us from bondage to both overwork and underwork and empowers us to live active and fruitful and God-glorifying lives for him. We put Jesus back in the center. He gives rest to our souls and also helps us put rest in its proper place so we're not kind of driving ourselves into the ground by working all the time and we're not kind of sinking into our sofas and just... uh, not doing anything, but Christ in the center, everything else finds its proper place. Paul is here saying, don't make Sabbaths or special days or celebrations the focus of our attention. It's meant to be focused on Jesus. Of course, all the Jewish festivals, they pointed to Jesus in different ways. The Passover pointed to Jesus as God rescued his people from Egypt. They would... uh, sacrifice a a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost and the avenging angel would go over the doorpost, pass over the house and God's people were freed from Egypt through that, actually laden with gold and the riches of the Egyptians. And so it points to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who died in our place, the faith in his blood over our lives means that the, the judgment that comes upon us for the things that we've done wrong, it passes over us and we're free to live and to walk in a relationship with God, free to worship him with our lives. It points to Jesus. And yet there's something about even celebrations that can, can cloud Jesus, that very thing they're supposed to point to. You think about Christmas, it can have a dual effect, can't it? It's a wonderful opportunity to, to bring a fresh focus on Jesus and to share the gospel. But it's also, you can also feel that other dynamic that is taking place where the, the tinsel and the trees and the Father Christmas and the presents and everything else is beginning to kind of nuzzle its way up onto the keyboard and sit there and kind of obscure Jesus. So we need to be careful and put it in its proper place, even celebrations and good things like that. Um, put Jesus in his proper place. We need to hear the warning here and the encouragement too. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. He's saying there are going to be very real pressures all the time. You're probably experiencing something of that dynamic now where things will come in and they'll try and interject between you and your focus on Jesus and take your eye off him and the grace that we have in him. Maybe you can't relate to the kind of the roasts and the, and the rules and the rests thing, but make no mistake about it. We're reading here, there are elemental spiritual forces, principles of this world, strong social, cultural current, currents, personal weaknesses and temptations, which are seeking to take our attention away from Jesus Christ. And it's a fight of faith daily to fix our eyes on him and follow him and walk with him. And in doing that, all these other things take their proper place in our lives. Sometimes we don't understand why something is looming up and having a power over us. And it can be hard to put that back in its proper place unless we fix our eyes on Jesus. And then, naturally, these things begin to ease back where they should be. All things, all these things here are good 
Things like human wisdom and tradition, scientific knowledge, caring for the environment, healthy eating, thoughtful drinking, social justice, care for the poor, personal comfort, family life, good things, not primary things. Our focus is on Jesus. And as we focus on Jesus, of course, that is a massive motivator to walk well in these things. And it's an energizer to do these things, yes. But we need to keep our eyes on Jesus because there are elemental forces at work that would want to take our eye off Jesus and actually reduce our effectiveness and our inability to glorify God in these very things when they have their proper place in our lives. I wonder if the band would like to come back. Let me finish with this quote here. I'm going to read some scripture in a moment to us about Jesus. This is Douglas Moo. He sums up well the message of this passage when he says, Do not let anyone impose upon you a program of spiritual development that does not have Christ as its heart. And we could add to that Christ, who is God's the Father's gracious gift to us, received by faith, not rules, received by faith, and lived out in the power of the Spirit. This is the focus. Jesus is the focus of our lives Let's relate to God through Jesus and not rules. Let's focus on what goes into our, not less, sorry, on what goes into our stomachs and more about feeding on Jesus and the grace that we have in him. And let's rest in him. That Barker lounger moment of the spirit. We trust in what Jesus has done for us and we enjoy this wonderful relationship with God on the basis of his finished work for us. Let's stand together. We're going to read this uh, passage. It's great that we've already heard this passage, that passage from Job. That's, that passage is about putting God back in the center of our lives, realizing who he is. All the other things kind of taking their proper place and being understood in the light of the, the, the greatness of God and the greatness of God most especially displayed to us. Yes, wonderfully in creation, but supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we read these words at the beginning of Colossians, because there was that therefore at the beginning of this passage, and here's, the, here's what it was there for, talking about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we just skip forward a little bit, a bit closer to our passage. It says this, you, who were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. Lord Jesus, I pray you would take, take your place in our lives this morning. 
pray everything else would get in its proper place as we look to you, as we focus on you. Everything is from you, for you, sustained by you. We pray that food would take its proper place in lives right now in Jesus' name. We pray that rules would take their proper place in our lives in Jesus' name. We pray that rest would take its proper place and that you, Lord Jesus, would be exalted and would have the focus of our attention. You would be the one that we feed on. You would be the one that we rest in. You would be the one that empowers us to live in relationship with God and to live right and for your glory. We thank you for this wonderful provision that we have in you. And Lord, may our lives glorify you as everything comes into its proper place in orbit around you, Lord Jesus. Let's worship him, shall we? Put him in his proper place. We exalt him in our lives together.